So normally when I'm preparing for a message, I, I have two to three times the amount of content that I actually preach. Um, you know, usually it's closer to, you know, just about twice as much preparation goes into a sermon than ever comes out. And a lot of stuff kind of hits the cutting room floor, if you will. Um, and in preparation for this week, the Lord wouldn't let me get past something that was in the message last week, was in the notes last week, but in the midst of, of the Holy Spirit and his anointing just leading, uh, it never made it into the sermon. And uh, so I kind of moved on. I'd moved past it, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, no, go back to this. This, you know, I, I want to start with this. So that's what we're doing today. We're starting with James chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going we're gonna to kind of, it's a short verse, but there's something you'll notice about it. As we read it, the word judgment is used twice. The word mercy is used three times. And uh, it's a pretty powerful verse of Scripture when you look at the definitions and how it's broken down and what it means. So let's read this. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's two dominant definitions for that word judgment, which I mentioned last week was the word crisis. is where we get crisis from. So the, the definitions of, of that word judgment in the Greek, the primary was judgment, opinion, or decision given concerning justice and injustice, right and wrong. Okay? So we understand that. Okay, judgment, that makes sense. The secondary definition was judgment, the sentence of condemnation, damnatory judgment, and punishment. So there's times this word is used. It talks about just discerning between right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice. And the second time, it talks about the sentence of condemnation and punishment. The word mercy, now this this is cool. Uh, I encourage you guys Go to whatever uh, app you use uh, or software you use that looks at uh, the Greek words. It has a concordance, a strong concordance, because this is just too cool. When I saw this, I was like, Lord, that's good stuff, just looking at the definitions. So the word mercy, elios, this, this word mercy has three parts. The first part is of men towards men, of God towards men, and of Jesus towards believers. So when you look at the definition, you'll read through. And so now it's my goal when I'm looking through the word and seeing mercy just to go, oh yeah, this is the application of that. Oh yeah, that clearly means that. So of men towards men, of God towards men, and of Jesus towards believers. So let's read the definition of men towards men. To exercise, this is of men towards men. You got to stay with me. We got three of them. I don't want you to confuse them. Maybe we should say it together. It's okay. Of men towards men. To exercise the virtue of mercy. Mercy. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, those suffering with pain. Joined joined with a desire to help them. Mercy. Men towards men. Okay. Mercy. Of God towards men. In regards to the protective care of God. The mercy and lenience of God in providing and offering salvation by Christ to men. That's the definition of mercy. God to men. And then of Jesus towards believers. The mercy of Christ whereby at his return to judgment he will bless true Christians with eternal life. 
The word mercy used an application of Jesus toward believers and here used as true believers. So I want to read that verse, verse 13 again. And then I'm going to read it with these definitions applied um, because it just makes a powerful statement. So just reading it straight from the word, for judgment will be without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now with those definitions applied, fitting into their right place. For the opinion or decision given concerning justice and injustice, right or wrong, will be without the protective care and lenience of God in providing and offering salvation by Christ to men, to one who has shown no kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, suffering with pain, joined with a desire to help them, the merciful return of Jesus Christ that blesses true Christians with eternal life triumphs over the sentence of condemnation, damnatory judgment, and punishment. How powerful is that? Our God, and and when we get in and dig in and study His Word, God, life comes from it. Friends, we can't be a lazy group of Christians. We've got to be passionate about God. This is the honest truth. I should be able to right now at this point with everyone knowing what verse I'm at, set this microphone down and say, first person to come up and finish the sermon gets the mic. I don't know how many people are in this room, but we should have a majority of people that could come up here and finish this message because we're studying this word together. Guys, we've done church wrong for too long. We set we set the guy up here with the mic or the gal up here with the mic on a pedestal and we've been dependent upon them to feed us. I feed babies. I don't feed adults. I, I challenge adults. I sharpen adults. I feed babies and I feed children. I don't feed adults. If you're getting fed by me, that means you are not spending time with God because this shouldn't be your feeding. This should be the thing that inspires you to run out of there. Yeah! Right? When I read this passage, I'm like, honestly, I felt this way. How much more awesome stuff like this is in there? The merciful return of Jesus Christ that blesses true Christians with eternal life triumphs over the sentence of condemnation, damnatory judgment, and punishment. Mercy defeats judgment. That's what that is. So guys, let's be hungry and passionate. In writing these words, in writing this letter, James is writing to Jews to encourage them to continue growing in this new Christian faith. But he was honest and direct and real with them. And so I have a renewed passion to be honest, direct, and real with you. Not that I don't think I've ever backed off in doing that. I think I've been pretty good about that. James was saying, your faith better be genuine. This is what he's saying to the church. This is what he's saying to a brand new church that is under persecution after the the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was martyred. You know, there's no real consolidation in the church. So he's writing a letter that's going to be scattered abroad, that's going to travel to encourage believers in many different regions. And he's direct and he's genuine. And he's saying, your faith better be genuine. It better be real. And if it's real... Mercy towards others will follow. 
That's what he's saying in this passage. If what you have is real, mercy towards others will follow. James was saying, being a Christian requires walking out your faith and demonstrating that faith every single day. Now the difference is, James is encouraging the church. They understand the context of life and death. Because there's killings taking place now in the church. People are being killed because of their faith. So when he's encouraging them to walk it out every day with faith, they understand their life's on the line. Church, we better understand that our life is on the line too. Walk it out in difficult ways that will challenge you and that may be difficult. James was simply being real with this young church that was looking for somebody to point them to Jesus. They're looking to him, to James, to point them to Jesus. And that's what he does. James emphasizes living this vital Christianity characterized by good deeds and a faith that works. A faith that works in your life. A faith that works in others' lives through you walking it out. Isn't that the cool thing? See, it's not just about us. The faith that's within us works in our lives and it works in the lives of those around us as we walk it out. Others get impacted. Others get challenged. Others get sharpened. When the Holy Spirit is speaking, others get convicted of sin. And then others are led to repentance because of His kindness. But it's got to be walked out in us. The time of this writing was a critical time for the church. When I started this series, I, I kind of laid the foundation of where the church was at. Let's remember, it's a critical time. It's a crucial time. The New Testament church was still in its infancy stages. I want to remind you, this is how James speaks to babies. Okay? This is how James speaks to babies. This is how James speaks to Christians in their infancy. Hello. I don't want to hear any more complaint by adults about James speaking to adults. Right? This is how he was speaking to those new in the faith and their life on the line. Walk out your faith. Demonstrate it. Care for others so that Christ is demonstrated. It's a simple message. Walk out your faith day by day and demonstrate it. And in that demonstration, Christ will be demonstrated and others will want to know Christ. Right? I I just made reference to that verse. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's one of those. That just to remember. It's not some heavy thing that leads us to repentance. It's His kindness. His love. James declares that as we grow and as we walk out our faith that good actions will naturally begin to flow. That's what he's saying here. As we're walking out our faith and proving that our faith works, that our faith isn't dead, that it works, we're walking it out, good works will follow. Good actions will follow. James also reminds us of good works if good actions, if godly deeds aren't flowing from us, 
then take inventory. Take inventory. Look in the mirror and be honest and say, why? Sometimes we don't walk out in faith that it has nothing to do with the condition of the heart, but it has to do with something we need to get free from, like fear. I'm not walking this out for fear, for fear of rejection, for fear of failure, for fear of whatever. You know, so, you know, our heart's in a good place, but fear or something similar keeps us from walking it out. Pride keeps us from walking it out. Well, who am I? Man, I just, I look stupid. I'm not a scholar of the word. I'll wait till I can, you know, till I'm, I'll, I'll memorize the book of James and then I'll go out there. No. If good fruits aren't following, then just get alone with God. Get alone with God and say, Lord, is there something that's hindering my walk with you? Because I believe my walk that, that good fruits follow, that good, that good results flow. And I'm not seeing them. So, Lord, am I just missing them? And, and here's the thing. There will be times God's like, yeah, let me remind you of this. Let me remind you of this. Remember when you did this? Good works. Remember when you showed mercy to that person? Great works. Remember when you... And so in that time with the Lord, he'll remind us. But then he'll also challenge us. There's times he'll say, hey, thanks, thanks for coming to me. You don't have to walk in fear anymore. My love has driven that out. Church, we got to get this. we got to walk it out. Good fruit and good works follow. They just naturally flow. I've talked about it a lot during this series. But no one makes me love God, right? No one makes me show my affection for God. I can't stink and help it. I can't help it. Just like he can't help dote over us and pour his affection out over us. We demonstrate him in our walks. So let me ask you this. Is this day any less crucial a time for the church? Is this sometimes hard to hear message any less needed today than it was back then? The answer is no. No. This is a crucial time for the church. This is a vital time for the church. We are up against persecution. We are up against obstacles. We are branded as narrow-minded and hateful for being in agreement with the Word of God. Guys, this is a crucial time for the church. It's a critical time. And we too need to hear this message. We need to own this message. We need to walk out this message. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to give a little disclaimer before I continue reading James 13 through through 20. And I'm going to take just a little bit of liberty to imply some tone to James's words. And I want you to read it this way. Because uh, I, I really think there's a shift here in James and what he's saying. I think there's a shift in how he says it. I think we're going to see a little bit of sarcasm. I think we're going to see a little bit of him getting fired up. He starts asking a lot of questions, a lot of really obvious questions, some that he doesn't answer, but some that he just can't help himself but answer immediately. In addition to sarcasm, I think he uses a little bit of name-calling. And you might say, well, sarcasm and name-calling, that's not of the Lord, is it? No, but James isn't the Lord. James is a, a man of flesh. The guys who write these letters aren't perfect. What they write down is inspired of God and directed by the Holy Spirit, but these are men. And so sometimes we respond, sometimes I'm, I use name calling. 
I'm not saying it's right, and sometimes I use sarcasm. Sarcasm has its place. I've said it before. Sarcasm has its place. There's times it really makes a point really nicely. Can I get any amens on that? Yeah, see? So when, when I was preparing this, I, I thought of a movie, and I didn't, I didn't show the movie clip, you know, because I think it, you know, it, the clip might have been, you know, but I'll go ahead and describe what the scene was. So the movie Sixteen Candles, and um, freshman Ted, also known as Farmer Ted, um, he is getting ready to leave the house of Jake Ryan, dreamy Jake Ryan, uh, who you know is popular and athletic and very rich. And so they go to the garage where that uh, Ted, who doesn't have a license or anything, he's going to drive Jake's car home. So they get there and he goes, uh, "Is this?" This is Ted, the freshman speaking. He goes, is this your car, Jake? No, says Jake. You know, you said you couldn't drive a stick. This is a, this is a Rolls Royce, Jake. You know how much the grill costs on one of these things? I heard the grill costs five grand alone. Five grand, Jake. You got five grand? I don't got five grand. Then he goes, well, don't hit anything. <laughs> don't hit anything. And then later on, as he's pulling out, he asks, your dad a big man, Jake? So that's, that's the, the sarcasm and the tone that I hear. But actually, I think James kicks it up a notch, and it's wonderfully done. If you ever want to see a phenomenal use of sarcasm, boom, right here. So there's my disclaimer. James chapter 2, verse 13. And let's read that verse that we just went over word by word, and let's look at it in the application and the order that James wrote it, okay? Verse 13, for judgment will be without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The question is translated literally as, can that kind of faith, the kind that doesn't produce good works, can that kind of faith save him? And the implied answer is obvious. is no. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by the works. By the way, our works, guys, show the genuineness of what we profess. That's the truth. Our works show the validity and the genuineness of what we claim to believe. You believe that God is one. You do well. You know what James is saying? You believe there's God? Good for you, buddy. boy, slick. Good for you. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You know what he's saying? They're one better than you. You just simply believe. They actually demonstrate fear. If you believed, you would demonstrate fear. You would demonstrate fear of a holy and a righteous God. They believe and they shudder. Friend, you just believe. a boy. Good for you, ace. You guys, intellectual approval of a system of Christian belief 
is not a saving faith. I intellectually weigh this and I'm with it. That's not a saving faith. Because it won't demonstrate anything. I promise you that's not sozo. A faith like that doesn't result in us being saved, healed, and delivered. Recently someone asked me, he said, you know, do you believe that someone can get delivered by themselves just going to God? I said, absolutely, because if I didn't, I wouldn't believe in Jesus. Because that's the work of Jesus Christ. If I can't be set free from demonic oppression by going straight to God, then He is without power. But here's what it requires. A yielded and surrendered heart for me to go, I am so desperate for you to be my healer. I am so desperate for you to be my, my deliverer. Set me free. I give you my all. Save me and take my life. Take my past. Take my future. Take the things I rock at and take the things I'm horrible at. But Lord, I so need you. Take it all. That is sozo. He can, he is our deliverer. So my response to her, while not that loud and not as much spit flying, was just as, as big saying, go to the Lord, but go desperate. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? I want to camp on that phrase, you foolish fellow, thus the name calling. This is how he wraps it up. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That word foolish is the word kinos. It's an adjective. And here's how it's described when he says foolish fellow. It's not just being foolhardy. This is what it means. You empty, vain, devoid of truth fellow. You who contain nothing. You're empty-handed without a gift. This metaphor describes one destitute of spiritual wealth. Of one who boasts of his faith as a transcendent, above-average possession, yet is without the fruits of faith. This word foolish, kinos, one whose endeavors labor, whose endeavors, labors, and acts result in nothing. They're vain, fruitless, without effect, and of no purpose. Once again, another reason to dig in. He's not just saying you're foolhardy. Oh, you're silly. You silly fellow. He's saying nothing. Your, your life produces nothing. It is, you come empty-handed to the Lord. You profess to have a faith, but you're empty-handed. It's useless, it's faithless, it's purposeless, and it's empty. This word, kinos, is used four times by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now as a reminder, James, we believe, is the oldest book in the New Testament. And so books written after the book of James, you know, possibly they had influence from James, who was an elder in the church in Jerusalem. So here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and he uses this word. And he uses this word in the context of works. I'm not going to badmouth Martin Luther, but the more I read, because Martin Luther is the one who called this the epistle of straw. He hated this book. And it's hard for, I mean, I don't want to badmouth someone who's dead and was really old and who nailed stuff to, thesis to walls and doors and stuff. I don't know. 
But whoever instigated the conflict between Paul and James, it's just ridiculous. So let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. Okay? So keep in mind that word vain, every time I say it, it's that word kinos. It's uh, empty, useless, fruitless, truthless, purposeless, empty-handed. His grace toward me did not prove empty, purposeless. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some young among, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Empty, fruitless, and purposeless. Down to verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil because of the work is not in vain in the Lord. It doesn't turn up void. It doesn't turn up fruitless. It bears fruit. It will generate purpose. It will point people to Jesus. Your work will be fruitful because it will point people to Jesus. I love what Paul says, whether I preached it or someone else, you believed whether I preached it or Kara preached it, you believed. Whether Katie preached it or Acacia preached it, you be- I believed. There's a work to be done that we are all to share in. I'm going to land. I'm going to bring us home. Music. Let's get a musician up there. You got you got anybody playing anything nice? In James chapter two, James questions whether or not someone has a saving faith. Friends, I think it's okay for us to question whether or not we have a saving faith, but not with some sense of heaviness or shame but with a sense of passion and desire because that's what we all desire. Amen? Think about that phrase, a saving faith. If we're already saved, then it should take on new meaning. It should take on new application. If we've already given our lives to Christ, then a saving faith should no longer be about us. Right? If I'm full, if I just had a big meal, then then a feeding salvation, a, a feeding faith should no longer be about me eating, right? It should be about showing mercy and kindness to others. Guys, there is no greater mercy than pointing someone to Jesus Christ. Now, I, I believe that we need to be, I mean, we better be obedient to God. He cares about meeting the needs of those who are hurting and in pain. But it comes with the faithful expectation that we are demonstrating Christ and that the result of every action we do so that it is a good work will be to point them to Christ. Every person we feed is meant to point them to Christ. Every brown bag we hand away is meant to point them to Christ. 
everything we do, every bit of mercy we show, whether we have a desire to help and it's demonstrated in our actions, is meant to point people to Jesus. God is good. We want Him to receive the glory. James questions that if someone has a saving faith, then the fruits of the Spirit will be displayed in their lives. That sounds a lot like Paul's description in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, fractions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's the same challenge that James issued. And neither James nor Paul originated the idea. Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus was much more abrupt than James on this matter. Although Christians oftentimes interpret James as as saying that good works play a role in our salvation, I want to make it abundantly clear. Good works play no role in our salvation. Okay? Let's be abundantly clear and let's be quick to proclaim this. Good works play no role in our salvation. The obedient, completed work of Jesus Christ, His intentional shed blood, His victorious resurrection and ascension plays every role in our salvation, not our good works. But faith that is alive should be demonstrated. Faith that works, faith that is alive, that is not dead, should be demonstrated and demonstrated by our actions just as Jesus came to earth with actions demonstrating the love of the Father. Jesus commanded us to love one another. And when we love our neighbors and we serve them, we demonstrate Jesus. 
Jesus commanded us to love and to serve. And as we serve and love and care for the needs of His church, we demonstrate Jesus. And when we demonstrate Jesus, people are pointed to Him. People are drawn to Him. When we demonstrate Jesus, they're drawn to Him. They'll linger. They'll follow. They might stay at arm's length at first, but they'll follow because they want more because He's been demonstrated and He is good. That's what good works are for, guys, to demonstrate Christ, to draw them to Him, to point them to a loving, kind, awesome Savior. In this book, we see a challenge to be faithful and fruitful followers of Christ. We are challenged to be Christians who don't just talk the talk, but to be Christians who walk the walk. The world has no more need of Christians who just talk the talk. And you know me, I love talking the talk. I do. I love talking the talk. I love talking about Jesus. But my talking about Jesus without me walking the walk is worthless. It's empty-handed. It produces nothing. Man, I'm fired up. I keep wanting to walk away from the notes and preach some more, but, you know, we're good. That's, this is good. A faith that is walked out daily, not weekly, is a saving faith. So, friends, if our faith is only walked out weekly, it's not enough. A faith that is demonstrated by godly actions and works is a saving faith. A faith that just can't help itself from demonstrating the goodness of God, that is a saving faith.